I was gonna say I finished the Jane Fonda book. Oh yay! Oh my god, that book is so thick and huge. Like, I mean, she's had a long life, (laughs) and it's not even. I think it ended like in her sixties, so it didn't even get to the the later parts. Aw, wow! But yeah, it was over like five hundred pages, and it just it took me like a week. I could not imagine reading 500 pages. It's literally like a brick, but it was so good that I like, I was like, I have to. And I also, that website or the, yeah, the website slash app that I told you about, Thrift Books, mm-hmm. I like went a little crazy with ordering books. So now I have like 13 books that I'm like, need to read before I'm allowed to order anymore because <laughs> I keep, well, okay, but here's my thing. So she mentioned malcolm x's autobiography she like referenced it a few times throughout the book which was one of the books i ordered like two months ago and haven't started reading yet so i was like okay i'll do that one next because she was talking about it in the book but then there's also like three other books that i started to read but haven't finished yet i'm just i've got a lot going on to read all of these words oh my god i i yeah the I, Drell and I went to like a local bookstore not long ago, um, called the Printed Page, I think. Um, but yeah, so I bought like a book, and I was like, let me buy a thin book, a skinny, <laughs> skinny book that I could possibly read. <laughs> and I get a book, and I like read maybe like I don't know the word preface or something <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this isn't even the beginning yet so i like put the book down and drill drill meanwhile is like reading like three books right now i can just do audiobook i wonder if she has um like i feel like it would be audiobook. like 20 hours long that was like my thing is like oh i bet there's an audiobook that i can like check out but i was like this book is so long i can't even imagine how long the audiobook is gonna be I mean, well, I don't mind. I just I'm can't a, read. I'm a fast reader, so I I think that's why I obviously enjoy reading because I like read quickly and absorb all the information fast. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, sometimes I also like skim through certain parts, but like I like read it so fast that I don't actually retain the information. Mm-hmm. I'm a good fair. reader. I that's something from a kid. Like I've always been a, a good reader, so that's kind of my thing. I will either skim it very quickly. Like, I'm like, all right, I got the gist. Mm-hmm. Or, like, I will reread, like, the same part. I'm just too, like, I think too much to read. Um, unless it's something, like, poorly, poorly written. But unless it's something that's not too intricate. I don't know, like, the Twilight series. I could read that. Oh, no gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well um, but I I got back into reading when I was riding the train for so long because my train rides were like 45 minutes and I think it's difficult to see like when you're driving well you can't read while you're driving but it's 
you can but you might die okay okay um but like listening to audiobooks or like a podcast or music when you're driving because you're like kind of focused on doing something else but i cannot sit there on the train and listen to a podcast or like music because then you're just like staring down the person next to you or like whatever and it just i get bored i can't i can't do it Yeah, no, I um, I love audiobooks. So the book that I um, am going to send you it is called um, Wandering in Strange Lands, A Daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots. Um, and it's written by Morgan Jerkins. It really um, talks about the Great Migration for the United States, like when mm-hmm. um, a lot of Black um, formerly enslaved people migrated north into places like Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, um, and then her kind of retracing the steps, the steps of her ancestry, and talking about like the lost parts of um, like true American history that we don't really know about, and just some of the subtle nuances of like how there are differences within um, like the Black community on like race that are kind of imposed by the greater like black versus white kind of narrative but it's like a really good book it sounds good yeah i love all nonfiction books it's so funny because like growing up i only liked fiction but now like i can't stand fiction i only I, like nonfiction. no i was a freaking weirdo i read a decent bit as a child and it was mostly because of um what were those things called like those like benchmark like you'd read and like like cross something off i don't even know but like basically they were like conning kids into reading more oh was that like oh you get a free trip to like six flags or like a free pizza or something yeah and i didn't even care about the prizes so much as i just wanted to be better than everyone else in my class um and so i read quite a bit but then like my mom and dad would like make us go to the library like every week and have to pick out books and i would only get like poetry books or cookbooks <laughs> cookbooks <laughs> and i never and i never cooked anything from cookbooks but it was like my family we only made like haitian food like there's a period of time where like i only got like spaghetti at like school and so i liked to look to see pictures of like non-haitian food <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. Um, so we are doing cults again. Woo! Round two. Yes. So we're doing women who were somehow involved, I guess, with cults. Um, yes. And so if you want to listen to our first cults episode where we did, I guess, what was it Jonestown? Mm-hmm. And then- the women of Jonestown. And your crazy murdered blood drinking cult lady. Yeah, Magdalena Solis, I think was her name. Um, definitely check that one out. We also give like a really good thorough, I, I think we had a good conversation about like what cults are, how they're classified um, in that episode, which I don't think we really need to get into again, but plugging our own episode. Woohoo. Yeah, maybe <laughs> we'll like link it or something professional. Yeah. <laughs> 
I, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did this too. I forgot to look up how to pronounce the cult name. Oh, it's Nexium. Nexium. Okay, perfect. Because I was just typing it and I was like, yeah. I'll look up how to pronounce it. But I've heard it pronounced like 30 times before. Um, there was a podcast. Oh God, what was it called? I don't even remember. Um, there we'll was a link it. <laughs> A journalist, I didn't even use it for my sources, but there was a journalist that did like an in-depth look at this cult, which is when I first originally learned about it. He had a friend that went through this, you know, entire cult process. So if you're looking for like a first-hand account, just Google Nexium podcast and you'll probably find it because I can't remember the name, but it was really good and really well done. Um, but one of the notorious members of the cult i guess it's kind of like this is like a a 1.5 person case because there's it's a group of sisters um claire bronfem and her sister sarah although sarah's like not too involved or like not as much involved in my description as as claire um and it seems like claire was and she was the one that was more involved in it but they are heiresses Harris, heiress, heiress, <laughs> I knew that was wrong when I said it, um, heiresses, <laughs> heiress, um, I said it right first, I said heiresses, and then I started to doubt myself, yeah, <laughs> which I should have done, but they are heiresses of the, the, did I, don't laugh at me, you're making me I'm sorry. feel insecure, it was just the, um, the inflection that time I just thought was funny, Seagrams, they, are in the descendant line of the Seagram's throne, which are alcohol people. So I actually did a little bit of history on Seagram's just because that was kind of interesting. Um, So Seagram's began in 1857. It was originally called Waterloo Distillery and was founded in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. So Joseph E. Seagram's, he was working for that, and he partnered with George Randall, William Ruse, and William Hespler in 1869 and became the sole owner in 1883. It was then that the company became known as Joseph E. Seagram & Sons. A few decades later, in 1923, Samuel Bronfam, that's going to give me some trouble, and his brothers purchased the Greenbrier Distillery in the U.S., took it apart, and then sent it to Canada, which is, like, cool, cool, but also seems like a lot of work. I don't know. Um, and they put it all back together in La Salle, Quebec. Uh, the Braun fans shipped their liquor from Canada to the French-controlled overseas collectivity St-Pierre and McQuillion off and then um, off the then Dominion of Newfoundland. I don't know what any of that means. They sent it somewhere, and then they would, um, the liquor would be shipped to bootleggers, um, shipped to bootleggers in Rumrose, to Rumrose. The ships were lined, loaded with the liquor that was. Um, beyond the amount that was allowed in the U.S. at the time. So they would disperse it in New York, New Jersey, among other states. And in 1924, the Braun fams founded the Distillers Corporation Limited in Montreal. 
So Joseph E. Seagram passed away in 1919, and a few years later, the Distillers Corporation acquired Seagram and Sons from the heir and then President uh, President Edward F. Seagram. The companies were merged and kept the Seagram name. So when Prohibition finally came to an end in 1933, they had tons of aged whiskeys ready to sell in the newly reopened American market. Samuel Bronfam was never convicted of criminal activity for his involvement with bootleggers during the Prohibition, but in the 1930s, when Seagram was setting up business in the U.S., it paid a fine of $1.5 million, so about $15 million today, to settle what they owed in taxes for ex- exports during the Prohibition. Um, the government originally asked for $60 million, but I guess they ended up settling for much, much less money. I... I feel like it would have been so interesting to be alive during the Prohibition. Not for me. <laughs> we kind of were a little bit, if you consider, like, marijuana. Right? A little bit? Not, I don't know. I guess. I don't know. It's a I different kind of Prohibition. A, yeah, I feel like living in a world where alcohol was illegal is a lot... I'm not saying like alcohol is like a huge part of my life, but um, I think it's a part. And so it's like weird. Like, True. The well, thought, like, it's like strange. Even if you um, don't drink, like going to bars or like football game. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, I feel like I lived in a world where marijuana was illegal for a while and it seemed normal. <laughs> That's well, also, I feel like people who partake in marijuana are not like running through the streets like the same way you would see like a drunk person at an event or yeah exactly it's way or like if someone was indulging in marijuana in public you wouldn't notice as like anyway i'm getting off topic um (laughs) so edgar m brom fam was chairman and ceo until june of 1994 great year by the way my birth year when his son edgar and probably your birth year too same yes um Edgar Bronfam Jr. took over as CEO. So Edgar Bronfam Sr. had five children from a previous marriage, including Edgar Jr., Claire, including Edgar Jr. So Claire and Sarah were his two youngest children, and Edgar Sr. had divorced his wife, Rita Georgiana Webb, once and then a second time i guess this is where it got confusing i couldn't tell if claire and sarah were like two separate children from those five children and then he had a wife that he divorced twice there's some family dynamics there that i didn't really get into but so the girls this is where it gets important the girls attended boarding school in the 1990s and would visit their mother who was living in kenya at the time i don't know why she was living in kenya so um claire moved to a boarding school uh, in Connecticut when she was in the 10th grade. So they grew up in England, sort of, and that's what I said, right? Not in America. And now she's in Connecticut in the 10th grade. Uh, But she ended up dropping out to live with her father in his estate in Virginia. Claire never finished high school, but she did end up becoming an accomplished equestrian. So right from the start, it seems like Claire and her sister were very much separated from the family as far as I know how boarding schools work you're especially if being on different continents from their parents it seems like this may be a reason where there might be some issues with 
developing attachments with parental figures, which will come up later. Um, So her sister began taking these classes that focused on self-improvement. The group's headquarters were near Albany, New York, and the group itself was called Nexium. It was founded in 1998 by Keith Rainier and a trained nurse named Nancy Salzman. So people new to Nexium started off with this five-day intensive course. Uh, the students were instructed to call Keith Vanguard or Grandmaster, which, like, I could never say seriously. If someone asked me to call them Grandmaster, I'd be like, okay, bye. Well, um, I, um, little known fact, I have a black belt in Taekwondo. Oh. And, yes, I know, super cool. And um, we referred to some guy i don't really remember the history but like anytime like we started class by saying something some sort of ritualistic chant to grandmaster lee and we would like bow like to grandmaster lee and it was just like a picture of this asian man okay well maybe that's where you got it from then (laughs) yeah seems weird but whatever um so salesman was known as the prefect some harry potter stuff although you didn't read harry potter right so you wouldn't know nope Nope. okay so he made claims that his teachings that he would also refer to as his technology could not only help people improve their lives but could also maybe lead the world to peace um to peace question mark i said it could also help lessen people's symptoms of tourette syndrome teach kids how to speak 13 languages and also help college students grow their moral decision capacity um turns out this was not so much the case it appeared that it was more like like, a cult yeah i feel like i feel like all of that was a lot of over promising (laughs) just a tad seems a little like make it make it like at least sound like within reach i guess i don't know right like whatever i guess that's why they're cults and not just normal things Mm-hmm. Um, so it appeared that it was more like a cult, that, uh, criminal organization type thing, and pretty much existed to serve Keith's appetite for sex and money. He drew people into his organization by promising them success and money and better relationships. But once he gained people's trust, he was quick to exploit it. So despite this kind of weird concept that he had and really questionable business practices, Nexium drew approximately 70,000 pupils. Big names like Sheila Johnson, a co-founder of Black Entertainment Television, Antonia Novella, a former, former U.S. Surgeon General, and Steve Cooper, who is now the CEO of Warner Music Group, were just a few of, of these 17,000 people. Um, Sarah, the sister, was like, hey, Claire, who is 23 at the time and competing as a show jumper with her little horses, was like, try this Nexium thing out. And soon enough, the sisters were paying Salzman to be their personal coach. Um, Claire purchased a home near Clifton Park, New York, and actually ended up setting up a horse farm down there so she could still continue to train with her horses. When she wasn't taking Nexium classes, she was competing in tournaments. Um, Claire actually ended up, I think I just said actually like seven times, so please ignore that. (laughs) Wasn't in my script, just ad-libbing, keeping things fresh. Um, (laughs) Claire ended up dropping her equestrian sponsor, which was a German 
clothing company and opted to wear a purple and black jacket emblazoned with Nexium instead. Rumors started to spread in the horse community about this weird group when Claire started to win more tournaments. People saw this jacket. Um, stuff was spreading. So Keith was really interested in Claire after she started winning these tournaments. Even though he had no history of being an equestrian, he was like, I'm going to start training you, Claire, so you can get into the U.S. Olympic team. <laughs> he wanted to Great. gain... Right? Like, I know nothing about horses, but I can get you onto the Olympic team. Um, he wanted to gain fame as a great coach because then he might get his foot in the door and get into the Olympian world, which maybe is like a cult man's, like, dream. People who are really dedicated and participate in groups and are coached by other people and yeah. are strong i feel don't let the colts near the olympians please that sounds like a really bad combination um so claire made the u.s team but she didn't make the cut to compete in the olympics in 2004 which is maybe a good thing um she eventually stopped competing which meant keith never got his he never got a shot at brainwashing the olympic community bummer there um so in 2003, the daughters convinced their father, Edgar Sr., to take the five-day course at Nexium. He saw the way this group was impacting his daughters and helping them grow and was like, why not give it a try? He too became a devotee of Nexium and even said Salomon was one of the most influential females in his life. These courses offered him a new way of looking at the world. It was different than all that hokey philosophy this... Uh, this stuff was based on the truth. It wasn't like all that other garbage stuff. Socrates, Descartes, we don't need that. This is the truth. Um, thankfully, his enthusiasm didn't last long. After he found out that Claire had loaned Keith and Salzman $2 million, he stopped going to classes. He was worried about these two going after his daughter's money, and clearly his suspicions were spot on. Can you imagine an existence in which you can just loan someone to to whatever million dollars? It gets worse. It gets so much worse. And that's two million dollars is not even like a dent in their fortune. Nice. (sighs) Guys, if you are interested in paying off anyone's student loan bills, give me a call. That's what I I was like. I am a mental health professional and I'm not going to give you garbage advice. So... Maybe I could have $2 million. <laughs> Maybe I should start my own cult. <laughs> no, never, never. Um, I don't have the kind of organizational skills for that. I don't like being around people that much. Um, later that year, Forbes published the first article that criticized Keith and his group. Also, I wrote his name as Keither, like, throughout this, like, every other time. Because I think my hands just automatically went to type either when i started oh. typing keith oh yeah which is kind of I funny do i do that with heather i for, because i do like work in health like research i write health sir <laughs> nice all the time it's kind of annoying but anyway um so it called the group out for tapping into the fad of coaching for the purpose of making high profits in this article edgar senior called out the group saying he thought they were a cult this Edgar Sr. was onto something. Um, so right away, Keith blamed Claire for the article. He told her she shouldn't have told her father about the loan, which is like super predatory that he's like, 
I'm taking all your money, but don't tell your dad. He also became paranoid that Edgar Sr. had hired a double agent to infiltrate Nexium to gather negative information, which, buddy, like, it wouldn't be that hard to do because your organization's garbage. Um, So Claire was in a really bad spot after this. Catherine Oxenberg, who once starred in the 1980s TV show Dynasty, recalled in her book um, about her Nexium experience that she remembered hearing that Claire had committed an irreparable sin against the group, um, against the groups, against the group leaded and were, against the group's leader that's the word I meant to type, and we're indebted to to Keith, was indebted to Keith for the rest of of her life. Um, so Keith also believed that the Birthright Israel Foundation, started by Claire's uncle, had launched a plot to destroy Nexium. Edgar Senior denied these ac- accusations, and one of his emails to Claire was used later as evidence in Keith's trial. In the email, Edgar Sr. said that he loved his daughters very much and was worried about these people telling them lies for their own personal gain. He signed off, tons of love, even if not requited, pops. Which is super sad. Like, and unfortunately, the family relationship remained strained until her father passed away in 2013. So, it later came out that Keith had convinced Claire that her family's money was evil and that the only way to make amends was to spend it all on very ethical things. So Claire and Sarah thought the, that by financially supporting Nexium, um, this was their way to make a difference in the world and leave uh, their own philanth- philanthropic legacy. So even though Sarah was the one who started off with Nexium, Claire ended up getting more involved with the organization. Claire was supporting Keith financially over the years, providing millions of dollars and even paying for private air travel. Listen to this. The, the flights that she would put him on cost $65,000 each. Like for one flight, because it's like on a private jet. Jeez. That's like wow. more than a typical person's salary for a year. That's where I'm like, stuff like that should probably not be allowed. Also, more than my student loans, if anyone wants to make a dent. Sadly, not more than my student loans. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) approximately $50 million of the sisters' money was used to sue the enemies of Nexium. $50 million! How many student loans? You could, like, forgive three people's student loans with $50 million. As you can tell, everyone... Uh, we feel strongly about student loans. <laughs> We're not salty. <laughs> um, so over the course of 15 years, Claire hired around 50 to 60 lawyers and nearly 30 law firms to pursue a dozen or so cases um, of their critics. There was also two cases against AT&T and Microsoft where Keith alleged the companies infringed on his intellectual property. Okay, Keith. Um, he ended up losing the cases and was ordered to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to cover the company's legal fees, which translates to hundreds of thousands of dollars of Claire and Sarah's money. The sisters also ended up funding Richard's... Richard? His name's Keith. Where did I even get that name from? I wish I could tell you. Was I... I wasn't even watching Gilmore Girls. Keith's poor investments schemes. 
Although Keith claimed to have one of the world's highest IQs, uh, he lost nearly $70 million in bad investments. He claimed the commodities market was controlled by the Illuminati, which he believed was managed by Edgar Sr. This sounds like someone else that um, I know who claims to be really, really smart and like a really great businessman but has right? also like gone bankrupt quite a few times that's what also just the whole illuminati like come on man it's like he's just like saying the most ridiculous things in the world and like people still believe this yeah. whole world's a cold let me anyway um <laughs> so in 2007 keith got the idea to start a real estate project in la to sell expensive homes in posh neighborhoods the sisters contributed 26 million dollars to the scheme and of course they did. didn't work out so well but hey what's 26 million dollars um so the sisters not only funded Keith's harebrained schemes, but they also helped to bring credibility to Keith's organization. In 2009, the sisters paid $2 million to get the Dalai Lama to visit Albany and meet Keith. Um, so that obviously made them look like a great organization, but they were not. Um, also, I'm disappointed in you, Dalai Lama. Right? That's interesting to me. I'm curious. Do you feel like the sisters were actually like, like Keith was like, hey, I want to do blah, 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 blah. And the sisters were like, okay, here. And like, you know, sign over a check or whatever. Or do you feel like possibly maybe the sisters just like gave him free reign or access to some sort of like account that just had a ton of money? I am not sure. I am not sure. But yeah. also... The thing is, when you have that much money, and, like, we're sitting here saying, like, $2 million, $26 million, it feels like a lot to us, but to them, it, you know, was like a drop in a bucket of yeah. their money. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows? Uh, so, this whole scheme that Keith had worked for, for a while as far as making his organization look good. Um, the negative stories, though, started to leak into local outlets in 2017. Um, so the New York Times published a story about the elite inner circle of Nexium called DOS. This was a female empowerment group with Nexium, but DOS stood for Dominius Osequios Sororium. I don't speak Latin, so don't quote me there. But it meant master over submissive women. So like women empowerment, okay. Um, in this group, the recruits were referred to as slaves and had to give their recruiter or master naked photographs or information that could damage their reputation and career as collateral. Um, some women in the group, including Allison Mack, who once starred in Smallville, were branded with a cauterizing pen. And according to Allison, the branding was her idea, but who knows if it really was her idea and the the branding contained keith's initials in it so from what i recall in the podcast the woman was in this group and it was it it was sold to her as something that keith had no involvement in it was like purely a a woman empowerment group and she Mm -hmm. got the brand and then she realized she was like huh oh my god it has his initials on it which is creepy and gross um But it gets worse, don't worry. The slaves had to keep strict low-calorie diets and had to keep their pubic hair long because that was what Keith preferred. Some of the... I know. 
Some of the women were ordered to have sex with Keith to show their commitment to the group. Keith denied his involvement with DOS and said he hired investigators to make sure that the women were not being abused or coerced in any way, and he described the group as a sorority, which doesn't sound like the sorority I was in at all, um, and said they were thriving, healthy, happy, and, you know, better off being in this group. They even had a forensic psychiatrist and ex-law enforcement people come in and like check out to make sure everything make sure everything was fine and they were like yeah it's fine but how many millions of dollars were they being paid to say it was fine yeah i don't know um so claire was not accused of being a dos member and did not end up with the later sex trafficking charges that other members of the group had had racked up so point for you claire um originally claire was indicted on racketeering charges identity theft and money laundering um and claire would have to stand trial with keith and other co-dependents including allison mack uh nancy salmon her daughter lauren and the nexium bookkeeper kathy russell the women all ended up taking plea deals so we can see though from court filings that the prosecutors were prepared to present evidence at trial that claire did have a sexual relationship with keith and that she may have been involved with increasing his access to women during keith's trial a former dos member who went by the name sylvie which was my french name in high school said that claire had hired her when she was Wait, 18. hold on why why was your french name sylvie i don't know why can't it have just been Rachel? I don't know. That's like okay. a thing. I guess that's one of those things that absolutely makes no sense. Um, but so the, I, that wasn't this actual girl's name, I don't think. It's like in quotations. So okay. um, she said that Claire hired her when she was 18 years old to clean and maintain her horse stables. Claire brought her to Nexium, paid for her classes, and she was then recruited as a DOS slave by another member. I think just as like a general like rule of thumb if a group wants you to be called a slave maybe don't join it i don't know yeah um pro tip (laughs) when the times article was published in 2017 and the fbi started to interview witnesses and victims keith started to panic he knew things weren't looking good for him so he fled to mexico he stopped using his phone and only communicated through encrypted email But in March of 2018, he was found by federal police hiding in a closet. (laughs) Like, come on, man. Hiding in a closet. Whatever. If they've already found your house, like, oh, they're not going to check the closet. So he was staying in a villa outside of Puerto Rico with several women, including Allison Mack. Which, like, Allison, come on. You're, You're an actress. You don't need this. Um, I mean, I guess. Even with all of this evidence that was starting to build, Claire still publicly supported Keith. In December of 2017, Claire published on her website that she still supported Keith because she had seen so much good come from both of their programs and from Keith himself. Um, in my opinion, the outside of the whole like attachment issues that she may have had that led to this, Claire may have been suffering from a bit of sunken cost fallacy. So because she poured so much money and so much time and staked her like entire reputation basically on her confidence in Keith, it's possible that she may have just been convincing herself to continue saying that, 
okay, he's a good person. He's a good person. Um, in the end, Allison Mack, Nancy Salomon, and Russell and Claire Bronfam were indicted and arrested. Um, Claire was able to secure $25 million in cash from one of her trust funds and $25 million in real estate, including her island in Fiji, in order to be released on a $100 million bond. So, even after just an island in Fiji, you know, you're not even using that island, like, 99% of your life. Yeah. Jeez. Um... Even after the arrest, Claire still supported Keith. She even went as far as setting up a trust to pay his and the other co-defendants legal fees. And in May of 2020, Claire asked a federal judge um, in Brooklyn to adjourn her June 25th sentencing, partially because of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, because she wanted her family to be able to attend. Her lawyer, Kathleen Cassidy, also told the judge that Claire would absolutely not consent to being sentenced via video or teleconference. Which to that I say, too bad, Claire. Maybe you shouldn't have given all your money to this guy. Um, That's interesting. I, I wonder, like, why does it matter? I don't <laughs> think you cannot consent. Like, you can't. Yeah. You can't say I don't consent to being sentenced in a court. They're gonna be <laughs> okay. Um, so Claire has been on detention and her New York resident, which like, we're pretty much all on detention right now. And I can guarantee that her detention probably looks a lot better than my detention. (laughs) Yeah, probably. She probably has air conditioning at the very least. And a dishwasher, I would imagine. (laughs) So that part's a little annoying. Like, maybe we could trade our residences so you could get a look at like because this would be torture for you it's slightly yeah. torture for me um so keith's sentencing has also been postponed indefinitely due to the pandemic his convictions include charges of sex trafficking forced labor and r- racketeering charges with underlying identity theft obstructions of justice, wire and visa fraud, forced labor, human trafficking, sex trafficking, money laundering, child exploitation, and possession of child pornography. Great guy that that Keith is. Busy man. (laughs) And that is the story of Claire and kind of a little bit of Sarah Bronfan. Bronfan sisters, we'll say. Wow. I told you. I remember when it came, when like the news broke and I saw Alice and Mack. And I remember I, I watched Smallville um, for a while. And so I was like, what? Alice and Mack? Chloe? Um, and getting like super into it. I'm like, oh my God. Like what the branding? Oh my God. Nope. Right? Nope. That's just like, I was like, this is too much for me. Um, oh, yeah. the podcast I think is called Escaping Nexium, which like uncover escaping nexium i should have remembered that the name has nexium in it um but what i like about the podcast is it goes into because it's so easy from the outside to say like oh my god they branded people they asked them for like they called them slaves and masters it's it walks through the journey of how people get kind of tricked into cults because it obviously doesn't start off this way they wouldn't get that many members but it's like oh this thing's great this thing's so awesome oh that thing's a little bit weird but all these people are my friends and this is like my 
primary source of income now. So, okay, okay. Like, it, it's, it's a good podcast, like, walking through the journey and giving you a real inside look at how cults operate. This week, I'm covering uh, the Symbionese Liberation Army and Patty Hearst. And so um, now some people might not consider this a cult. I will go into why I do consider them a cult. But yeah, I back so, you just, up on that. They're, they're cool. I mean, it's, it's my freaking podcast. All right? yeah. It's whatever I say it. <laughs> we make the rules here. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I will start with a brief history of the Symbionese Liberation Army and why I think I, they fall into the category of cult. Um, so in 1973, Donald DeFries became leader and founding member of member of the United Federated Forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army, or as I will call them moving forward, the SLA. The SLA was an American left-wing group of people um, who considered themselves to be a revolutionary vanguard army concerned with issues of class and politics and a bunch of other fun stuff. And so in Donald DeFries's manifesto, because if you have a cult, you have to have a manifesto, guys. Come Obviously. On. Um, he wrote, the name Symbionese is taken from the word symbiosis, and we define its meaning as a body of dissimilar bodies and organisms living in deep and loving harmony and partnership in the best interest of all within the body. Personally, that statement sounds a little rambly. Yeah, not a word, but pretty. I'm like, I mean, you just said things. I think an English teacher would give that sentence like a solid C. It sounds like one of those like filler sentences that you add because you're like, oh, they said it has to be a full page. But um, so, yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, generally, I think he makes his point, but it's weird. Um, and so the political the political symbiosis that he was referring to pretty pretty much encompassed all um, left wing like ideologies and struggles um, such as anti-capitalism, anti-racism and feminism among um, many other things. Um, and so the SLA wanted people of all races, genders and ages teenite on the principles of the SLA and lived together in harmony. In contrast with this, though, the SLA operated by committing robberies, murders, and other acts of violence. And so Donald DeFries, who was the only black member of the SLA, um, based many of the principles and even the, like, emblem that the SLA adopted, um, which was, like, a seven-headed cobra symbol, um, he based all of that on the principles of Kwanzaa, uh, which are taken from... um, I guess the words are Swahili words. And so he based them all on those principles. And so those principles include uh, Umoja, which is unity. Also, pardon me if I'm not pronouncing some of these correctly. Uh, Kuji Chagulia, which is self-determination. Ujima, which is collective work and responsibility. Ujama, which is uh, cooperative economics. Nia, purpose. Uh, Kumba, which is creative creativity. And Imani, which is faith. Um, also had a friend growing up named Imani. Hi, Imani. Um, and so uh, the reason that I and um, some others do consider the SLA a cult is because they were a small group of people. Um, they were actually, I think, 
at most like 22 ish, 25 people. Um, and they united under the leadership of like one person who effectively was kind of like their supreme authority. And they were devoted to a, sing- to a single cause, specifically political symbiosis um, or this like symbionese thing. Um, and they operated by perverting common beliefs into something more sinister. And so a lot of times you see like religious cults like really perverting like the teachings of christianity to like serve like their own purpose um like those rattlesnake people what rattlesnake people there's some churches that like have like rattlesnakes and stuff oh well okay um Sorry, I just read about it in Fonda's <laughs> book, so it was like fresh on on my mind. And well, it makes Stay me away think from of like snakes, people. <laughs> those that one thing. Oh gosh, like the Jesus Camp. Have you ever seen that? No. Oh gosh, that you should you should watch it. It's like these crazy kids in like this Jesus Camp that are all like speaking in tongues and they like Ugh. can like move rattlesnakes. I don't know. Okay, too much. Thinking <laughs> about cults. <laughs> okay. So, um, so yeah, with, uh, so yeah, this SLA, um, uh, definitely they operated by doing, um, all sorts of robberies and other acts of violence to get whatever their point is across. I don't really understand how they were operating. Like they say that they wanted everyone to come together and live in harmony. And I don't. Except us. We (laughs) cannot live in harmony to force you to live in harmony. Yeah. And so it. Like, I understand what they say that they they were for, but I just feel like what they were doing didn't really um, reflect that. And I don't know how it how to them it was working towards that. And personally, I didn't try to go too deep into like the Symbionese uh, Liberation Army's like history because I'm a busy person. Um, So um, I will fast forward to November of 1973. So in November of 1973, as in Oakland, California, Superintendent Marcus Foster and his deputy, Robert Blackburn, left a school board meeting, they were attacked by two SLA members. The members used hollow point bullets packed with cyanide, which, what is up with people you like, is cyanide a commonly available thing? Like, I don't, I don't know. Also, like, if your intention was to kill someone, why wouldn't you just use real bullets? It seems like it's more complicated to procure cyanide bullet <clears throat> i feel like things. cults like cyanide for some reason i don't understand but I don't, um i don't know so as a result of the attack the superintendent was killed while his deputy deputy was left critically injured um and so marcus foster the superintendent who passed was actually the first black person to ever serve as a superintendent in the history of oakland california However, the SLA was angered by Marcus Foster's alleged plan to introduce student ID cards to schools. Um, They believed that this was a, quote, fascist act, and therefore Marcus Foster had to have also been a fascist. Fun fact. (laughs) I worked at the student ID office. So, um, so the, the, the SLA vehemently opposed fascism, um, which I think is fair. Fascism, fascism is not cool. Personally, I don't think student ID cards are fascism, but it was a terrible job. Just throwing that out there in the, in the summer when all the kids would, we'd get like 45 kids who would come in and have to like do the IDs and I'd be like yelling at them and like corralling them like 
like cows and I'd be like stand in a line you stand there you smile and take your picture and then people would be like I don't know if I like my picture and I'm like deal with it next person let's go it was a lot all right (laughs) anyway so the reality is that the plan that Marcus Foster proposed wasn't even his own it was simply a watered down version of the other plans that had already been proposed so no matter what ID cards were coming um it wasn't like an active Marcus Foster's, um, I don't know, it wasn't his brainchild. Um, but regardless, the SLA hatched this plan um, of attack and Marcus Foster was tragically killed. A few months later, two SLA members, uh, Russell Little and Joseph Romero, were arrested for the attack and charged with the murder of Marcus Foster. Angered that two of their members were arrested, one of whom actually was not one of the people who um, attacked the school board members, the SLA planned to kidnap someone of importance as a bargaining tool to negotiate uh, the release of Russell Little and Joseph Romero. The FBI was already actively investigating the SLA and had found one of their old safe houses that outlined and and they found like a plan that outlined an attack that was coming on January 17th, 1974. It's possible that the FBI either didn't take this seriously or they didn't have enough information to act. um, But ultimately, they took no precautions about a forthcoming attack. Um, The and the SLA actually didn't attack Um, until February. And so on February 4th, 1974, the SLA kidnapped Patricia Hurst from her apartment in Berkeley, California. Patricia, also called Patty, as I will call her moving forward, um, was the heiress. See how nicely you said that? Yeah. (laughs) And they're both heiresses. Yeah. See, Nice, nice work there. Um, so, uh, so Patty was the heir was the heiress to Hearst Communications, which is one of the largest mass media and business information conglomerates in the world. And so, for reference, um, Hearst Communications owns fifty percent of all A and E networks, like per cable networks or whatever. Um, 20% of ESPN, which is in partnership with Disney. They own magazines like Elle, Cosmopolitan, Marie Claire, Food Network, Town and Country. Um, and they also own newspapers like the San Francisco Chronicle and the Telegraph. Uh, so kidnapping the heiress to this corporation was a pretty big deal. Um, Patty was only 19 years old at the time. During the attack, she was beaten and she lost consciousness. Um, it's also said that like somebody shot off like um, um, a machine gun or something, which seems like overkill if you knew you were not about to kill her, but whatever. Um, it's largely believed that Patty's abject- abduction was mostly due to access and opportunity um, as her apartment was near one of the SLA's safe houses. Um, and so the group intended to leverage Patty's safe return in exchange for the Hearst family using their influence to free, uh, Russell Little and Joseph Romero from prison. Unfortunately for the SLA, as far as I know, demands like this rarely work. Uh, no one was going to release two people suspected of murdering someone from prison, um, even if that meant like Patty was going to die. Um, but, uh, 
So once that plan failed, the SLA demanded that Patty's family donate and distribute $70 worth of food to every Californian in need. Um, And so I think that the SLA basically demanded like $6 million for this effort, but it's estimated that to actually do this, it would have cost, it would cost like 400 million. And I think like different reports said different things and like something said that the SLA did demand 400 million. I'm not sure, but I do know that 6 million was the first six. Yeah. 6 million was like amongst, I guess the first demand. And so Patty's father, he obviously wanted his daughter back. And so he took out, he actually took out a loan and uh, immediately donated $2 million worth of food to poor people in need in California's Bay Area. And so the SLA was mad that they only distributed $2 million worth and they were asking for more and there's back and forth, whatever. Um, Ultimately, Patty's father claimed that the amount of money that the SLA was asking for were required um, for him to like make like equivalent donations of was beyond his capabilities. And so in the end, the SLA refused to release Patty. And I think that they would show her like newspaper accounts as evidence that her family didn't care about her or that they weren't trying to do the right thing. And so um, now Patty claims that she was held for one week in a closet 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 <laughs> so listen um, guys if you're gonna start a cult put people in the closet closets. um okay so patty claimed that she was held for a week in a closet blindfolded with her hands tied and that donald defries repeatedly threatened her with death um during the time that she was in the closet um and so eventually they started letting her out only for meals uh, but she was still blindfolded and during that time she was able to interact with sla members um so she started to join in on their political discussions um still um she was mostly blindfolded and mostly remained in like the closet for weeks other than when they let her out to eat and so eventually while she was in the closet i guess they allowed her to remove the blindfold and they gave her a a flashlight to read sla teachings um, that they said that she needed to memorize Um, but still she wasn't allowed to see any of her captors faces during this time and eventually after several weeks patty claims that donald told her that the war council I guess they had a war council, um, had decided or was at least thinking about killing her or letting her stay with them and that she needed to start thinking about that as a possibility. And so Patty said, quote, I accommodated my thoughts to coincide with theirs, end quote. Um, And Patty told them that she wanted to stay with them. And so once she made that decision, they removed her blindfolds, allowing her to see them for the first time. And Patty joined um, the SLA. And so on April 3rd, uh, 1974, so two months after she was kidnapped, the SLA released an audio recording of Patty in which she declared that she had joined the SLA and now she was going by the name Tanya or Tania. It's spelled I've never heard someone named Tanya before. Um, You should watch Real Housewives of Atlanta. There's a girl named Tanya. She's Canadian. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so I'm just going to say Tanya. Um, 
And so days later, on April 15th, 1974, members of the SLA arrived at the Hibernia Bank to commit a robbery. On the surveillance camera, Patty is seen holding a semi-automatic M1 carbine, which is also known as a gun. (laughs) And so during the robbery, two men were shot and wounded. Uh, No one died, thankfully, from this attack. Um, And as a result of Patty's participation in this robbery, the Attorney General of the United States at the time, William Saxby, said that Patty was a, quote, common criminal, not a reluctant participant, end quote. An FBI agent, however, who was heading the investigation said that SLA members can be seen pointing their guns at, Kat, at Patty during the, ro- the robbery, um, implying that it's possible that she was coerced. It's also possible that they were just pointing guns as they talked. You never know. But Also, it's possible for someone to be under fear for their lives and be coerced without having a gun pointed in them in that exact yeah. moment. Yeah. Um, and so... A month after that robbery, Patty is said to have taken part in another theft. This time, two married SLA members named William and Emily Harris stole from a sporting goods store in Inglewood, California. And so the manager saw the theft and pursued the couple out of the store. Patty was waiting across the, across the road in a van, and the manager was able to get a hold of William, and the two began to fight. Patty started shooting her semi-automatic weapon into the air. It startled the store manager who dove who dove to safety, and William was able, able to get away, and he ran to Patty. The store manager attempted to go after them, but Patty started aiming her shots closer and closer to him to deter him from coming after them. In all, she emptied an entire magazine of bullets shooting into the air and trying to get the manager to stop following. Um, so that was a lot of bullets. Um, At this point, Patty was a bona fide fugitive. Uh, Patty and the Harrises hijacked two cars and abducted the owners of the vehicles. One man who was abducted thought that Patty was so nice and personable that he actually wasn't sure if he wanted to report the hijacking um, and the abduction to police, which, interesting. Um, And he, I guess, during, like, while he was, I guess being abducted or was being captive held captive patty was talking to him about like how effective like cyanide is and like um like how interesting like hollow point bullets are and other things like that but she was also like checking on him like are you okay like are you comfortable um so yeah cyanide bullets how personable very interesting yeah Um, So eventually, the police tracked down the main base of the SLA. They actually got there before Patty and the Harrises arrived, and so they hid and waited. But eventually, a gunfight between the SLA members in the building and the police began. Six SLA members died, and at first, they actually thought that Patty um, was amongst one of the people that died. But she didn't, so they issued a warrant for Patty's arrest for several felonies, including two counts of kidnapping. Um, that following year, uh, so in September of 1975, Patty and another SLA member, um, named Wendy Yashimura were arrested in an apartment in San Francisco. And I didn't, um, I mean, I didn't really do too much research into how they were found. Um, but yeah, so they were arrested. They were in a closet. 
drown in a closet, unfortunately. <laughs> well, possibly, who knows? Um, and so when they asked Patty her occupation, um, when they were booking her into the jail, she listed urban gorilla member. Um, so like gorilla warfare, not gorilla the animal. Um, and then she asked her attorney to send a message to the SLA members. Um, the message read, tell everybody that I'm smiling and that I feel free and strong. And I send my greetings and love to all the sisters and brothers out there. Um, and so after a few weeks in police custody, Patty eventually renounced her allegiance to the SLA. From then on, Patty claims that she was brainwashed and under the control of the SLA. Still, prosecution moved forward with charging and trying Patty for her crimes. People were split on believing Patty's claims of brainwashing. At the time of her arrest, Patty weighed um, 87 pounds, and she, I think, was typically like around the 130s in weight, um, and that she was described by a clinical psychologist named Dr. Margaret Singer um, as a low IQ, low affect zombie. And so Patty's IQ um, from Patty's pre-SLA IQ to her post-SLA IQ had actually dropped 28 points. And she had huge gaps in her memory of her life before the SLA. And she was experiencing recurrent nightmares. Um, She was like essentially brainwashed. Yeah, so all of, like, those things are what made people think that she was brainwashed. Other people basically believe that she wasn't brainwashed, that, yeah, she was scared for the first few weeks, but ultimately she, um, like, just decided to join. Like, she was a young person who needed, like, a revolutionary cause to, like, get behind, and she was completely fine and knew what she was doing, and though that she was going by the name Tanya, she knew she was Patty Hearst, and she just chose to be a part of the SLA, because, you know, be like, she had, for instance, when her SLA friends were robbing, um, or yeah, were committing their theft at that sporting goods store, she was left in the car alone, so she could have driven off and told anyone that her name was Patty Hearst, and she could have gotten home, um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of split between those two um, camps, I guess. What do you think? And so during her trial, personally, I don't know. I think that it is fully possible that she was brainwashed. I th- also think that it's fully possible that she, um, like, I think it's possible that she also just made, like, a life and death decision, but also was, like, got behind some of the SLA, like, teachings. I I don't know. Um, Do you have thoughts? Yes, I do have thoughts. I think that she... I think that it's similar to people using the excuse of people who are maybe experiencing domestic violence or violence within the home of, like, your boyfriend or husband might be gone for the day, so why don't you just pack up and leave? I mean, it's possible that even though you're alone or that you have a gun in a situation and could like turn on people, it's hard to say what you would do. And it also brings up for me um, the 
like people who are in prison or in jail and are put in solitary confinement how much that can impact your brain um even if it's just for for a little bit i think they've done studies that that show it does actually impact your brain and there's lasting trauma from that so being locked in a closet and losing that much weight um being like deprived nutritionally obviously your brain's not functioning full force um i think that it would be really hard for me to believe that she was acting of her like a free will and like agreed actually with what these people were saying i think that it would just be nearly impossible that she wasn't impacted by all these other factors that could alter her her thinking during her trial, the judge, Oliver Jesse Carter, ruled that anything Patty did after the initial bank robbery was voluntary. I don't understand how he can, how he can just rule that, how he can just decide that that's the fact. Um, because I'm not convinced um, that, like, everything, like, was voluntary because they had her, like, um, sending out, like, regular, like, statements to like the press and the media or like or recordings and stuff and Mm -hmm. there were experts who were able to like look at like the linguistic feature linguistic features of things that the sla had like previously said and then compared it to like patty's statements as tanya and then compared like patty's like pre tanya statements and just linguistic features like that are the way that we speak as people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were just so different. You can tell that there are so many elements that were from the SLA and that um, even if she was um, like fully on board with the SLA, there are things that she would have naturally said a certain way that she didn't. And so just seeing that, like just at the very least says to me that there was a lot more puppeteering like behind the mm-hmm. scenes. Um but um, he didn't allow any of the expert testimony that looked at the differences between Patty's personality or her use of language before she was in the SLA versus Patty as Tanya. Um, but he allowed prosecution to use any statement that Patty released um, as evidence that she was in her right state of mind. So it was, in my opinion, a very flawed. Yeah, um, seems like it was a little bit biased. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so Patty testified that her captors told her that she needed to appear enthusiastic in all of their illegal activities and that if they had any doubt um, that she was not fully, quote, in, then she would pay with her life. Um, And so I think that statement alone, if that is true, like, why wouldn't she act enthusiastically? Um, and so in the end, um, I'm, I'm skipping through a lot of things in the trial because the trial is very involved. But News in the- trial. We're, we get down to the, the yeah. intense stuff. Yeah. Um, and so in the end, in March 1974, Patty was convicted of the bank robbery and the use of a firearm while committing a felony. She was originally sentenced to 35 years, but the judge um, died before it was final. And so a new judge named William 
Oric Jr. sentenced her to seven years in prison and said, quote, rebellious young people who, for whatever reason, become revolutionaries and voluntarily commit criminal acts will be punished, end quote. Um, so I think he also had his own bias, clearly. Um, and so people still remained split on whether Patty was really brainwashed or not. And so John Wayne, the popular Western movie dude, I've never seen a John Wayne movie, but John Wayne pointed out that it was interesting that people could easily accept that Jim Jones had brainwashed 900 people into committing mass suicide, but somehow could not accept the premise that the SLA could have brainwashed a teenage girl which I think is a very valid point. Um, yeah, also, like, just imagine how you, like, just think about how you might feel if someone kidnapped you and, and did all that stuff. And, like, you just are lacking empathy, in my opinion, if you are just so, if you're just, compl- like, I don't know. I don't like these yeah, judges. I get what you mean, where you're just like, this is not possible. Like, I, while I know, while I acknowledge that I'm, like, kind of on the fence and I just don't know, um and I see both sides of the argument, I think that being unwilling to see the other side, unwilling to see how it is possible that somebody could be brainwashed, I think is just a willful, like, unempathetic mm-hmm. choice. Um, and just a random connection to um, Jonestown is that the representative, Leo Ryan, um, he was actually um, leading a petition for the release of Patty from um, custody. He thought that she shouldn't be in jail um, and she shouldn't have been convicted. And so he was um, actually collecting signatures uh, to get Patty to be released. And during that time, he actually ended up traveling with um, like the concerned family members of people at Jonestown to Jonestown and was then murdered by members of Jonestown before. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. And so... um, just a very strange connection um, there. Um, eventually, President Jimmy Carter um, commuted Patty's sentence to 22 months served, and she was released in 1979. And then President Bill Clinton pardoned her on his last day in office in January 2001. And so she's gone on to like speak about this, and she's written um, about her experiences with the SLA and she has also uh, gone on to be an actress and she's a mother and yeah. Well, she's I'm a person. glad that <laughs> she, she's still alive, <laughs> that she appears to have recovered. I'm sure that there's still lasting effects of that trauma and having to go through trial and being in like, can you, I think that it's fair to say that if she had never been kidnapped, that she would have never joined this organization. So the fact that this traumatic life event is now following you forever and not only are you, like, getting... Like, wow, she's just been through so much and I think it's great that she has... appears to have recovered and is doing good. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. 
Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.